Hey. Good, good, good. Man, good to be here with you all this morning. Uh, I'm not going to lie, the cat got showed, and I heard several, aww. I don't know how I feel about that, y'all. I'm just kidding. I'm just playing. Uh, hey, I'm excited to dive into the series. Uh, just a quick announcement, uh, parents, if, if you have kids in here, I don't see anybody, but uh, then uh, I would encourage you possibly to run and check them into children's ministry. Uh, today's going to be a little bit of a sensitive topic and uh, things that are being discussed, some explicit content. So uh, if you want to run in, check them into children's, you could do that right now. Y'all are like, oh, shoot, glad I came to church today. <laughs> All right, so... Uh, it ain't nothing crazy, all right, but uh, it is, uh, I just want to be sensitive, okay? So, uh, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them. Uh, the Bible has explicit stuff in it. We're diving into it today. Um, if uh, you need a Bible, the usher's going to come forward. Man, shoot your hand up. Uh, they would love to give that to you. If you do not own a Bible, uh, would you actually please take and keep that? It's our gift to you. We want you to have the Word, to be able to use it during the week. So, uh, man, please grab one of those. You can also follow along on your Version app. The instructions on how to do that is right here. You can take that link, put it into your browser. Uh, man, we want your eyes on the Word. And especially today, uh, the reason being is that we're actually going to spend a lot of time in the Word today. So if you're somebody that like likes to like write in your Bible, then maybe pull out your Bible and be ready to write in it because we're going to be chopping up the text for a good amount of time today because I think it'll help us understand how we can take something like this and kind of apply it into our lives. So we're in the middle of our Unsung Heroes series, which I hope you all have been blessed by so far. And uh, we're looking at somebody today who is really unsung in a lot of ways because of the drama that he was caught up in. Uh, he was kind of mixed in with one of the greatest characters of the Bible, but we don't really focus on him a lot because of uh, what this other character did against him. And so what I want to think about today is how can we grow in our faithfulness and in our character to resolve to be close to God for the long run? What does it look like to be faithful to God all the way up until our death? And I hope that that would be what our hearts even desire, is that we would maintain faithfulness with the Lord for the long haul. I think that the guy we're going to see today uh, really shows us how we can do that. In order to actually understand, though, some of his character, we're actually going to have to spend a lot of time on the antagonist of the story. And ironically, the antagonist is one of the most celebrated men in all of the scriptures. And so if you have your Bibles, go to Second uh, Samuel chapter 11. That's where we'll be. This is the story of King David. If you're not familiar with the scriptures a lot, King David was uh, one of the uh, most celebrated men in scriptures and one of the maybe most celebrated kings throughout all of human history. Uh, he's a godly man, a man that God chose who was after God's own heart, the scripture says, and uh, would just love to kind of spend a good amount of time in the story at large. As you're turning there and as we start reading, I want to, uh, just in case you don't know, give us the overall scope of the story and what's happening here. David's supposed to be at war, but he's not. What happens is he goes out on the roof of his house one night, sees this woman bathing, is like, man, she looks good, and then says, who is that? He has his servants go and get this woman Bathsheba. He brings her in, sleeps with her, sends her back to her house. She then gets pregnant and is like, hey, I'm carrying your kid. And then he's like, oh, no, what do I do? So he calls the husband back, tries to get the husband to sleep with her so that he thinks that the baby is his, but the husband won't do it because he's kind of committed to the mission of God. And so then David 
David ends up sending him back out into war, uh, murdering him, getting him killed, and then taking his wife to be his wife. Y'all are like, Hallmark or Bible? What are we doing today, right? Uh, this is uh, Maury, who's the daddy, mixed with Jerry Springer, all combined, and it's in the Word of God, all right? So knowing the context will help us appreciate what's really happening here, because uh, there's a lot of heaviness to this story, but a lot of insightfulness for us as well. So 2 Samuel chapter 11, we're going to pick it right up in the beginning in verse 1. It says, In the spring of the year, uh, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him in all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanliness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So we actually see several things about David right from the jump, okay? One of them is it says that this was a time where the kings were supposed to be at battle. David is a king, and yet he is not at battle. He is chilling in his palace, right? So immediately we actually see David being lazy not actually doing what God had called him to do. Notice that it says he sent Joab and his servants and all of Israel. Do you see that there? Now, obviously, all of Israel didn't go, but the author is trying to show us, hey, everybody is kind of out fighting this war, and here is David chilling in his palace, right? David was supposed to be there, but the sin of laziness is creeping in and is making David abort the mission that God actually gave to him in the first place. We also see it highlighted in the word, but. It says, but David remained, right? It happened. There's another key word for us, late there's another key word for us, as David arose from his couch. And so there are all these keywords immediately at the start of the text to show us David is not doing what he's supposed to be doing. He's a lazy. He's sitting down. He's kind of supposed to be at war, but he's chilling on his couch. It's late one afternoon. He goes out, and this is all of what's happening, right? Uh, when we are not walking in what God has called us to walk in, when we are not on mission with God, then we have to believe that sin is creeping right around the doorstep of our house. We have to realize that, man, mission with God actually helps us run into what he's called us into and avoid the sin that can plague our lives. David has aborted mission, and now sin is creeping in his life. Idle hands, Proverbs would say, is really the death of a lot of men. And so David is idle. This is why it's important not just to know God, but to literally do what God is calling you to do, to serve him, to even know the direction he would have in your life, and then begin to walk in that direction. And so he sees Bathsheba on the roof of his house, which means that he and Uriah were actually close friends and that David trusted Uriah as a military soldier. Why do we say that? Well, in that culture, when your house is close to the palace of the king, then that means that you were a trusted soldier or friend or confidant in some way, shape, or form. Kind of similar to a governor's mansion is often next to a capital type thing. So even that much more in that culture where uh, people were trying to kill the kings left and right, if you lived right 
right next to the king, then that means you were probably trusted. We know it was really close because David could stand on the roof of his house and physically admire this woman's beauty. And so David and Uriah were actually close friends. This isn't somebody random. This is like a key soldier. We see this even more because one of the servants says, isn't that Bathsheba, like the wife of Uriah? They know his name. They know who she is. They know her name, right? In other words, it's like... David, don't, I mean, you know who this is, right? Like, like this, is, this is Uriah's wife, the servant says. And so then David sent messengers, brought him in, and so, or her in. The king's no longer acting like a godly servant. What he's now acting like is a pagan tyrant, right? And a godly servant, uh, we are here as leaders to serve other people and to lay down our lives that other people may be lifted up, not to use other people that we may be, uh, have our own uh, sort of desires whether that be subtle desires like affirmation or monstrous desires like this one here, Jesus says that's how the Gentiles rule and lord over you. This is not so amongst us. So David was a man after God's own heart who consistently laid down his life for the people. But all of a sudden here, we see this turn in David's heart and he's no longer laying down his life, but he's laying down other people's lives that he may be blessed. We see a difference in his leadership here. And so right away we see laziness, lust, envy, and now we actually see him getting other people involved. He's now creating these kind of co-conspirators with him because they're now having to go and get the woman. They kind of know what's up. They see her leave and go back. And so he sends for her. They have sex. And then she sends back and uh, says, hey, I'm pregnant, right? Which means a minimum four or five weeks have passed. Why do we say that? Because it says she had been uh, purifying herself from her uncleanliness. What that all that means is that she had just finished her menstrual cycle. And so that means that at least a month had to pass before she could even find out that she was pregnant. She couldn't go to HEB and buy a pregnancy test right away, right? That didn't happen. So as she missed cycle next time around, then she realized, and the reason that's important for us is that that means a whole month has passed and we've seen no remorse from this godly man, King David, We see no, like, ah, why'd I do that? We see him not really caring at all. David's actually absent from the picture until he realizes, oh, dang, I made a mistake. How am I actually going to cover this up? And so uh, for those of us who think that the Bible is lame, uh, you haven't read the Bible enough. There's so much stuff in here, right? Also, though, for those of us who wrestle with whether or not men wrote the Bible or God wrote the Bible, let me tell you why this story is one of the reasons you can have confidence that the Bible was not written just by the hands of men, but rather the Holy Spirit leading men to write. It was authored by God himself. This is Israel's best king. This is the one they've set their hopes on. This is the one that the lineage of Jesus would come from. This is the highlighted, celebrated king. And if a man had wrote this, then all of these details would have been buried, friends. They would have been buried because who indicts their best? Who makes their best look like a pagan, look like the worst in a lot of ways? But men did, especially in that culture, by the way, especially in that time, it was only shown the rulers were like God almost. But here we actually see the ruler looking like one of the worst pagans that exist. Why is that? Because God is the author of scripture and God will choose to indict even his best, even the ones that he chose 
chose because the Bible is not a story about how awesome man is, but about how awesome God is and how he can save broken humanity. Amen? And so that's where we can find confidence and comfort for the story is indicting David. So if we find ourselves in positions like David, we can know that there is forgiveness because the end of the story turns for us. But God here is indicting one of his best. So David's in deep water. And what he does then is he conspires a plan. So go to verse 6. So, so David sent word to Joab, hey, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. And when Uriah came to him, David asked Joab or how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and, and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. So now David's getting even more people involved, Joab. Furthermore, this is a terrible military strategy, y'all, right? Like you don't send one of your elite tactical warriors back to tell you how the war is going. You make an intern do that, right? And so remember earlier in the story, David and Goliath, David went out to see how the war was going because at the time he just kind of had intern status, right? So you send somebody out to go or you send somebody who doesn't have a whole lot of play in the war back. You don't send one of your best back just to say, oh, hey, here's how the war's going. And so as Uriah is going back to give this account, you've got to believe that he begins to think, man, something fishy is happening here, right? Joab has to believe that. This, this isn't what you do if you're a king. We also see David asking Uriah how the war was, how the people are doing, like David cares at all, right? David is literally just asking Uriah these things to get what he wants out of him. And so He's now manipulating the situation, trying to appear like he's a shepherd that cares, when in reality, he's just trying to gain something for his own advantage. And friends, we could do the same thing, right? We can literally act like we care or serve trying to act like we actually uh, a desire to help or something. But in reality, all we're trying to do is get our own position and advantage rather than actually hearing about how someone is doing and caring about somebody's soul. We can end up just like David here. And so so here's another sin that David has. He's lacking shepherding from the man who's considered the shepherd of God's people. There is so little of that here in this text at large. He doesn't care about the war. He doesn't care about people who are sacrificing for his very kingship, friends. He just cares about himself, and he's trying to manipulate the situation to get what he wants out of it. We see that once again because once Uriah leaves, he sends a present with Uriah, right? Like, I love that he even calls it a present instead of a gift. It's like, literally David is stooping down to this low, low position, just trying to manipulate the situation to cover his own sin. Justification after justification after justification, which is exactly what we tend to do when we are caught up in sin. And rather than repenting or turning, David digs himself in more and more. So then we see in verse 9, it says, but Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his Lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? So David's plans are soiled. Uriah didn't even go back down to his house, but he slept with the servants, it says. This is interesting because who those servants are, are actually most likely the king's bodyguards. And so catch the irony of the story here. Uriah refuses to go to where he could have rightly went to, his wife and his house, but he slept with the bodyguards of the king, literally protecting the life of the king, the very king that's about to take Uriah 
Nehemiah's life here in a few days. This is a godly, a faithful man who is covering the king, who is wanting to make sure he doesn't abort mission. He's protecting him, but David once again uses this against him. It says, then they came to the king. So now he has these servants like following around, watching Uriah like he's a spy, right? Like he, he didn't go do what you told him to do. And he run back to David and David says, hey, why didn't you go? It says, hey, you've just come back from a journey, it says, not a war, right? Not a mission, a journey. Like he just came back from like sightseeing and visiting his sick grandma, right? He says, hey, didn't you just come back from this long journey? Go rest, you know? And Uriah is submissive to authority, uh, but yet he rebukes David very gently, but very directly, even in how he responds to that. In verse 11, he lets him know this is not a journey he came back on. This was a mission, a war he was coming back from. Uriah said to David, the ark in Israel and Judah dwell in booths, that's like tents, and my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. My gosh, as you live and as your soul lives, Uriah cares for the very soul of David, and David is about to destroy this man's soul. Once again, you see the irony, and really, these two being pitted against each other. In fact, in your Bibles, the subheading of this whole section probably says David and Bathsheba, but in reality, the subheading should probably say David and Uriah. We see these two men have totally different dispositions. One is living this godly, dedicated life, focused on God, focused on mission. One of them is a boarding mission and living in a very sinful lifestyle. So then verse 12, David stoops again. Then David said to Uriah, okay, remain here today also, and tomorrow I'll send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next, and David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank so that he, David, made him drunk. And in the evening when he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of the Lord, but he did not go down to his house. Once again, David's stooping, right? The deceitfulness and the destructiveness of sin is on full display as David entrenches himself deeper and deeper into this mistake that he made trying to cover it over and in realities digging himself into a deeper hole. Verse 14 says, in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab and some of the servants of David along or among some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. And then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting. Like what a what a tragedy, right? The same King David who we can imagine singing these sweet lullaby psalms that we love is now turned into a monster in some ways as sin is entrenched in his heart and he is unable to forsake it. David ends up sending Uriah out carrying his own death letter, right? Hands it off, gets another person involved in Joab, causing Joab, he has to obey, respect the king. The king gets what he wants. He says, hey, murder Uriah. And so Joab then does it. And so in verses 19 through 24, 
four, what happens is Joab then sends back to the king and he says, hey, the mission you had is accomplished and some of these people died and Uriah the Hittite also dies. So he sends a servant back to tell David all these things. And then if you jump down to verse 25, it says, David said to the messenger, thus shall you say to Joab, do not let this matter displease you. For the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him, right? Not a single word of grief, right? It's like, ah, what do you know? This is war, right? Sometimes some people die. Other times we win. Hey, just just go back and keep fighting. Overtake the city. I know God will give it to you, right? We see this man literally stooping down. In fact, it wasn't just Uriah that died, but David sacrificed several of his men to cover up his own sin. As it says, many soldiers died. Uriah the Hittite was a part of it. Like, gosh, this is hard, friends, is it not? This is David, the man that we respect, is now captivated by sin, and it is entrenching him deeper and deeper. In fact, it reminds me of, like, the psalm, Psalm chapter 1, verse 1, which was ironically written by King David. The very first psalm, the very first verse in the psalm says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. This is exactly what David was doing. If you see this psalm, there really is, in a lot of ways, a progression of sin. Because first you're kind of walking, right, it says, and the counsel, just the voice of the wicked. And then it says if you kind of stand, right, in the way of sinners, and then all of a sudden you sit in the seat of scoffers. You see this sin literally making you pass by, then stand still, then sit down in it. And as David was standing or walking on the roof of his house, and he saw Bathsheba, he stood there and admired her and then sat with her. We literally see David doing the same thing. Sin is deceitful and tricky and it will spiral you down in all these ways. Sin is ending up crippling David in these crazy ways. And if we are not careful, then we can also fall just like King David. I think about in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. This will also be on the screen. You'll have to turn here. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul is writing uh, about some of these very instances And he starts off here in verse 11. He says, now these things happen to them as an example. What are these things? He's talking about some of the things that happened in the Old Testament. They were an example to them, but listen, they were written down for our instruction. So this happened with King David, but it was written down for our instruction on whom the end of ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed unless he fall. Let anyone who thinks that he is godly look at some of these examples and say, man, I better listen, I better take heed unless I end up in the exact same situation. Because see, David was a man after God's own heart. He was a man who wrote a bunch of the stories of the Bible and yet he ended up falling in this way. And so woe to us if we think that we will not end up falling like David or have the propensity to fall like him. We need to take heed unless we actually do fall. This is why this is in here. Paul then goes on and says, no temptation is is overtaking you that is not common to man. Listen, God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Look, literally over and over and over and over again, God was providing the way for David to escape the sin that he was in and sin after sin after sin that was committed, David did not escape it, but continued to entrench himself in it. And we can find the capability of 
of doing that ourselves too, unless we do not think our heart is as wicked as David's was. David was a man for God's own heart, friends, and yet and still he falls in this way. Man, we are so tempted if we are not careful to end up aborting mission, aborting our love for God, and not staying consistent and steadfast to our king forever, friends. Let me just say it really plainly, and what I want us to begin to think about as we look at the unsung hero, Uriah, in this story. Friends, how is it that we cannot end up like David? Because we have a very, 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 very young church. We are a young church. What that means is that we have 30, 40, 50, 60 years in front of us. And we know the statistics. The statistics would say about 83% of people in here will not be loving Jesus and following the Lord in just 30 years from now. And what I so desperately want is for us to not just be following Jesus, but to have more fire 40 years from now than what we have right now. And so how is it that we do that? How do we not end up like David? Well, I think that you Uriah is actually a great picture here for us. One of the things that we see in this whole text is that there almost appears to be no mention of God, right? It almost seems like God is distant from this story. He's not mentioned. It's almost as if he is kind of standing back and just letting this happen. But we actually see this at the very end of this text. In verse 26, the last two verses of this chapter, It says, when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband because this was probably a godly man who loved her in the same way that he loved his mission. He probably served her. She was mourning, not thinking, oh, man, now I get to go be with the king. She wanted her husband. This was a godly man. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore his son, along with the many other wives that David had, treating her not like a godly man would, but literally just using her. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And if you know the rest of the story, then you know what happens. You reap what you sow. God will protect those who are treated unfairly, even if it doesn't seem like it in the immediate moment. God was present, not distant. God was watching, providing the way for David to escape, and yet David didn't choose that. And so how do we end up not like David in our life? I think we model our unsung hero in Uriah. I want us to think back through the story, and we're not going to read through it, but try to remember all the story. And there are several moments for us, for us to be able to see how Uriah was a faithful man, and that in his faithfulness, this is what kept him rooted and not falling away from the Lord. First of all, it says that Uriah was a Hittite. In fact, every time it mentions Uriah by name or somebody speaking about Uriah, it says Uriah the Hittite, right? And so Uriah wasn't even a Jew. He was actually this African man who at some point heard about Yahweh, the God of Israel, and he converted and then ended up joining Team Jesus. And so what we see, one, about Uriah is that he was actually faithful in his conversion. This is the first moment of faithfulness that we see. He literally uh, realized that redemption of the world would happen through this nation of Israel, through this God called Yahweh, that we end up worshiping this Jesus, right? He realized that, man, if we're going to fix broken and fallen humanity. It's not going to be by these false gods. It's going to be by this true God. So this Hittite ends up converting and joining up with the Israelite army, trying to push this mission of the redemption of mankind forward. This shows that he is faithful and that he is resolved in a lot of ways. He believes in mission, even though the mission wasn't even originally his. 
And then it goes on uh, and mentions that Uriah is kind of faithful in his calling there in verse 9. Though at home he's not going to be unfaithful like David and just sleep around and be lazy, he knows he has a mission to do, so then he walks in the reality of that mission. His brothers are in battle, so if he can't be out there, then he's going to sleep and actually protect the king. We thirdly see that Uriah is uh, faithful in his commitment. In fact, what I would argue in verse 11 is he says, King, I can't do this. These people are sleeping in booze, and, and who am I? We actually see his conversion leading to his calling and his commitment being rooted in his conversion and in his calling. Because he truly believes in God and believes in who God is, and because he knows that God has set something for him to do, then he finds this zeal, this commitment to God, this promise that God gave. He's going to hold on to it. His eyes are focused here. Are we committed to Jesus like this? Are we committed to Jesus' mission like this? Are we committed to the point where we forsake even our own mission and our own desires and our own wants because we believe so much in the mission of God that we give ourselves to that end? This is what Uriah was doing for us. He was showing this. There was deep, deep uh, commitment. Thirdly, we see he's uh, committed in his conviction. Or fourthly, he's committed in his conviction right? This is important. He's faithful in this because even when he's drunk, y'all, he still doesn't do what would be so easy and natural to do. That means that he had such resolve before this moment. It says that David made him drink drink after drink after drink to the point where he was wasted and he still stayed and ended up protecting the king's life because of how wildly committed this man was to the mission that God had. He had this conviction that ran deep so that even when his mind couldn't properly think, he was still serving God in that way. Man, are we that committed? Are we that convicted about the mission that God has put in front of us? This calling on his life, he believed in and he held on to that no matter what. We see him being faithful in his character in verse 14. He was trustworthy. David literally gave this man a letter that he was carrying his own death into battle. And the ironic thing is that David knew that Uriah was a man with such deep character, he knew he would not kind of peek in and see what the letter said. Even though there was fishiness happening, even though it was kind of suspect, like what's happening? Why is David acting like this? It would have been really easy for him to kind of peek inside and see what the letter said, but he didn't. He was a man of deep character. And so this literally led him to actually delivering the letter. And then finally, he was faithful in his courage in verse 15. Once again, David using his own loyalty against him, for he knew that if he were to put Uriah in the front of this heavy battle, he wouldn't run away from the battle, but he would stand there and fight even until his death. David using this man's character and his courage against him, Uriah was faithful even until death. Uriah stands in wild contrast with King David, right? Like think about all the things that we just said there. You know, David is a Jew. Uriah is a Canaanite, a Hittite, a Gentile. Yet who acts like they actually believe in God? Uriah does, right? David was lazy. Uriah was diligent ready to fight. David was lustful, committed adultery. Uriah was focused, maintained his vow, maintained his commitment. David was murderous. Uriah cared for David's very soul, it says. David cared nothing about others or their state or their condition, even sacrificing other men to cover up Uriah's death. Uriah slept on the floor with the other men because he believed in the mission of God that much. David has no mention of God this whole chapter. David has no mention of this God that he so often 
worships. But Uriah, the first word that we see Uriah utter is actually down in verse 11. And the very first thing that he says is the ark. What is that? The ark is where God dwelled in the Old Testament. The first thing Uriah is thinking about is, hey, God is out here on the battlefield. The people are out here on the battlefield. Like, like, man, how can I actually abort that mission? Uriah's first thought is about God. The list could go on and on and on. And so how is it that we remain faithful to God no matter what, like Uriah was? Because I think that there's two realities here, two things we can glean from this text at large. Well, there's way more than two, but there's two I want to focus on today, okay? Uh, One of them is that I think God wants us to be faithful to him even when the leaders that we are following are flawed and failures. God would actually have us remain faithful despite other people's actions, God would have us be faithful despite what the people around us may be doing. He wants us to be faithful in his call to us. In fact, even in poor leadership, you can still choose to serve God in all of these ways. What does it look like to be more faithful to God than to your leaders? Because your pastors, your bosses, your kings, all of these people are going to fail you. And by God's merciful, merciful grace, right? Not to this extent, by God's grace. But man, nonetheless, there's going to be failure. We, I, will fail you. I am a fallen man. And if you begin to try to serve me or the well as a church above the actual mission and the kingdom of God above God himself, then you're going to end up being hurt. And I think that that can actually shipwreck your faith. In fact, here's what I think. So many people have been hurt by the church, right? So many people have all these woundings from the church, but what usually ends up happening is that they get hurt by the church, and then they end up casting that hurt onto King Jesus himself as if Jesus was the one that actually hurt them rather than fallen man that hurt them. If our eyes are focused on fallen men and what they do, then we can end up not falling in love with the only man who will never fail us, the only king that will never do stuff like this to us, King Jesus. And so we have to realize that Man, all of this brokenness from the people of God, even those who serve God, is not God himself, but rather the people of God. And I think about even in my own life, right? Like my dad would talk to me a lot about Christ growing up, but he was physically abusive to me and to my mom. And he was emotionally abusive and he ended up leaving us. And I hated Jesus, y'all. Like I hated Jesus because I projected upon Jesus who my dad was onto him. But as the real Jesus began to be exposed to me, I realized that, man, my dad was just a broken man. Maybe he even knew the Lord. I don't know. But literally, this is not the Lord. There's something totally different. A lot of y'all have been hurt by the church, and there's an inability to see past that and to look to the God who will never hurt you. There's an inability to realize that, no, 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 God wants you to be faithful to him and that he will not hurt you in these ways, right? Uriah could have so easily done the same thing, but he was faithful nonetheless. Even as David was forsaking so much of his responsibility as a king, Uriah remained faithful because he wasn't serving that king. He was serving the true king. And we see that all throughout the text. And so you can, friends, and you will be mistreated in this life by others, even by Christians that time. 
And you can choose to walk away from God, or you can choose to uh, have a stain on God and who he is, or you can choose to look past that sin and to see the God who will never, ever, ever hurt you, right? There's so much wounding that God wants to heal. We have a chance to be faithful like Uriah and faithful to our God because Jesus is not the one that hurts you. His servants may have, but he never will. And he wants you to maintain this mission on him. In fact, even here, right, where it seems like God was absent until the end. It seems like God was almost allowing this to happen in some ways. I want us to see that God clearly saw Uriah. He wasn't distant or absent, but very present in the whole process. You don't have to turn here if you don't want, but in the end of 2 Samuel, in 2 Samuel chapter 23, we see uh, in the very first verse, this is, now these are the last words of David. So David's about to die. He speaks his last words. And then there's kind of a tag on after David's done. And in verse 8, it says, Now these are the names of the mighty men whom David had. And it goes on and it lists all these different names. And do you know who the very last name that is named is? Verse 39 says, Uriah the Hittite. There were 37 valiant men in all. It's almost as if God does not want the last thing we remember about Uriah to be the guy who was betrayed and killed, but the last thing God wanted us to see about Uriah was that he was a faithful man. He was a valiant man. I want you to not even remember Joab or David's sons or all these other warriors. The last name I want on your mind was Uriah. See, God saw Uriah. He saw his faithfulness. He wanted to honor him even through that. In fact, this is not the last time that Uriah is mentioned. If you uh, look at Matthew chapter 1, this is actually the genealogy of Jesus here. And in Matthew chapter 1, verse 6, it says this, And Jesse, the father of David, the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. In many ways, God is showing that the Savior was kind of born through David, yeah, for sure, but he was also born through Uriah right? He wants you to remember that wife that David had, that was not David's wife. Even though Uriah died and David ended up marrying her, that was actually Uriah's wife. And so in a lot of ways, the deep irony of this text here, friends, is that Uriah was fighting even to his death because he believed that redemption was going to come through Israel. And as he died, that paved way, his sacrifice literally paved the way for redemption to come, not just to Israel, but to God himself as Jesus was born into the world through Uriah's wife, Bathsheba. Because see, David had many of other wives. God could have chosen any of them, but it's almost as if God realized Uriah's faithfulness, made the promised person come through that line, and then wanted to remind us this was actually Uriah's faithfulness that brought forth the king who will end up saving us from our own sins. Uriah did not die without the Lord not remembering his faithfulness, but he saw his faithfulness and was connected into that. His faithfulness literally brought forth the very thing that he was fighting for. It brought forth Jesus just in a way that he wouldn't have probably wanted it to be. Because friends, this world is broken. And so sometimes there will be hurt. And sometimes there will be pain. And sometimes it won't look how we want. But we serve a God that takes all things, even the things that were planned for evil, and he ends up using them for good. And dare I say, sometimes the worse evil that there is, the more redemption God brings through it. Because God is a God who is going to highlight the glory of who he is and bring good into our lives. Because he will not forget you, friends. He sees faithfulness. He rewards that. And so Uriah stands as a wild example for us in all of these different ways. 
He's faithful to God's commands, to his call, and even until death, how is it that we end up like Uriah and not allow the people that end up hurting us in the process shift us from mission and into what God is calling us to do, right? What I'm saying is, is that, man, remain faithful even if godly people end up sinning against you. That's not the Lord sinning against you. It's his servants. God will never sin against you. In fact, God died that your sins may be covered. And so this is what God is calling us into. Uriah is faithful even until death. Secondly, what does it look like to follow God with this much resolve, right? David abandoned the faithfulness and chose his own sin over God's. As hard as it is to follow God when you are being mistreated, I would argue it may even be that much harder to follow God in the long run, all the way into your death, be it an early or a late death. And I think Uriah kind of stands as that example. He follows God, persevering for the long run. How do we do that? I think about the video that we watched this morning, right? The Paul and the Lindas who have been serving the Lord consistently year after year, decade after decade. They are still loving Jesus, sometimes even more today than they did when they first started. How do we do that, friends? For we are a young church and we can end up like David and spiraling out of control and not clinging to God in the long run. I think about the Bob and Deanna Christensen's, the, the Mark and uh, Misty Nodines, the, the John and Janet Merrick's, the... Uh, uh, Paul and, and Lori Carlson's and all the different examples that we have in this church of people who now are leading their grandkids to come and believe in Jesus because they're committed to that much of the king and of who he is. You know those men and women have been hurt deeply by even God's own leaders and yet they are still serving him wildly. How do they do that? Well, I think that the example, once again, is in Uriah. Uriah had this deep calling, this deep conviction, this deep commitment. He clung forth to God in these wild ways. While many other people would shipwreck their faith, Uriah wouldn't because he believed so deeply in God. I think about all the different people throughout Scripture who have shipwrecked their faith. You have Judas, who literally was following Jesus, shipwreck his faith, right? You have people like uh, uh, Demas in the New Testament, where in two books of the Bible, he's on team Jesus. He's following God. But then in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, Paul says that he ends up deserting, right, the gospel, and he is in love with the present world, and he's gone off. He no longer loves the Lord. He loves the world, and he leaves the mission of God and what God has called him to. Just as David took his eyes off mission, as Demas took his eyes off mission, off of God, so they ended up being entrenched in this sin. We are tempted to do that as well, friends. So how do we not do that? Well, I think that actually one of the answers and one of the ways we see this played out in Uriah's life is actually in a psalm that David himself wrote. In Psalm chapter 92, beginning in verse 12, it'll be on the screen as well, David says this. He says, The righteous flourish like a palm tree, and grow like the cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green to declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock and there is no unrighteousness in him. They still bear fruit in old age. Why? They are planted, it says, in the house of God. That means they are planted in the word of God. They are planted in uh, literally gathering together with other people in the house of God with the other saints that are encouraging their life. I mean, think about one of the other tragedies we see in this story of David. There were many men that knew about David's sin and what he was doing, yet none of them chose to call David out and to bring him up to the plate. The first time somebody calls him out is in the next chapter, chapter 12, where Nathan, 
the prophet comes and calls him out. And then that actually leads David to repentance. That leads David to turn back his mission, his eyes reset on Jesus because he had the people of God encouraging him to be godly how he was supposed to be. But where were all the servants at? Where were other people helping lead him in that? I think about Hebrews 3, 13. It says, do not neglect to meet together so that none of you will become hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Translation, sin is more tricky than you are godly and you need other people around you to encourage you or you will, it says, you will fall into sin's trickiness, friends. This is why we push CG Connect. Not just because we want you to be in a group. We want you to be around other people that are gonna love you and hold you accountable. Where is that at in your life? It doesn't need to be CGs, but it could be wherever. Do you have faithful, godly men and women who would encourage you that you may stay planted in the house of God, that you may stay planted in the person and work of God, that you may persevere to the long run. Friends, I desperately desire, I so desperately desire that we would be loving Jesus way more 40 years from now than we are today. But it takes for us to be rooted in our God. It takes for us to be rooted in the people of God, to remain faithful in the long run, to be faithful to our calling and to our uh, conviction and to the commitment that God has over our life. It takes us being faithful to our very conversion and remembering that over and over and over again because we learn from David, how far can you fall? Man, this far. And how fast can you fall? Man, this fast right? How is it that we remain faithful? We have to be faithful to what God has called us to. And when you become bigger than God, when your comfort becomes bigger than God's kingdom, when your plans become more important than God's plans, when your uh, livelihood becomes more important than the life of Christ, then we can end up like David. Take heed unless you fall, Paul says. We are tempted to fall. My gosh, friends, how I don't want this for us. David's self-focus spiraled him and destroyed him. But Uriah's self-sacrifice resolved him and immortalized him. It brought forth the Savior of the world through his sacrifice, through his faithfulness. This unsung hero is an example for us in many ways. Uriah gives us a picture of what it looks like to persevere. But Uriah, friends, is merely a foreshadowing of the true and greater Uriah who would come later, our King Jesus. See, Uriah literally carried his own letter into the battlefield, it says. He carried his own death warrant into the battlefield. And Jesus Christ himself also carried his own cross up the hill of Golgotha into the true war, the war for our souls, the war of sin and Satan and death. Jesus carried his own death instrument with him. And just as Uriah had kings and his brothers and friends conspiring against him, so Jesus had kings and his brothers, his disciples, his friends conspiring against him. And just as when the war got started, everybody pulled back from Uriah. So just as the war of our sin got started, all the disciples left Jesus, it says. But Uriah's death stood to condemn David. And it stood to show how David was not a righteous man. But Jesus' death actually stands to justify David. For in David's life, he ended up repenting and turning back to God. How could God forgive something as monstrous as this? It's because Jesus was the true and greater Uriah who died to forgive David's sin and not just died to forgive David's sin, but he even died that he may give the reward to Uriah's faithfulness. He died the death that looked like Uriah so that even in David's sin, man, he could be forgiven and Uriah's faithfulness, he could be rewarded. Jesus is the true and greater Uriah. And so as we look to him, friends, we can actually realize that, man, I know some of us may feel like David today. 
Some of us may feel like we are entrenched in this sin and that we may feel like we're spiraling out of control or, or maybe, man, we, we just feel, we're prone to wander. We can feel it and we can sing that song because we know the reality. Friends, you have a Jesus that died for you, that he may wash over all of your sins, that he may allow you to turn back to him and be faithful like Uriah in the long run. Or maybe you're more like Uriah and maybe you are literally walking in faithfulness. I want you to know, friends, your faithfulness is seen by our God and he will reward it in the end. You will not be forgotten. Even when other people just put you down as the person who ended up getting betrayed and died, that's not what our God will do, right? He will take your faithfulness and will reward it in the long run. But we have to be faithful, committed. Friends, I pray that would be us. Would we be a church that though we're young right now, right, we're all going to get older, right? We're all going to keep growing. Would your faith not wane over the years, but grow over the years? Would you be desperately in love with Jesus more and more and more? Would you not be like a candle that gets lighter and lighter as it uh, diminishes till it gets snuffed out? Would you almost be like a light bulb? You know, light bulbs, they get brighter and brighter until it dies and it like gives that last burst of energy, right? Man, would we be more like that where we get lighter and lighter and grow until God takes us home to be with him? I long to be a church like that. Would we be a bunch of unsung heroes like Uriah? And one day when we stand before Jesus, I long to be there with you all and to have him look at you in the eyes and say, well done, my good and faithful servant. I love you guys. Let's pray.